You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR. I'm James Whitmore and it's Sunday the 13th of December. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is broadcast and created on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Have you been down at the bay lately? Maybe you've gone for a walk along one of the beaches or even had a swim. The water's still pretty cold. Maybe you've had a dive or gone fishing. Today we're going to be hearing all about how Port Phillip Bay is changing. Melbourne's growing and the water is warming, so it's no surprise that our local wildlife is changing too. We'll be right back after this announcement. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio. 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. The oceans are pretty big. How on earth do we know what's going on down there? You'd need a team of thousands of divers counting all of the fish and invertebrates. Since 2008, the Reef Life Survey has been doing just that. 13,000 divers in over 50 countries have been counting ocean wildlife on reefs on every continent. It's one of the biggest citizen science projects in the world. They've even done two laps of Australia and made some startling discoveries like the fact that fish populations have declined by a third around Australia, 93% of sharks have disappeared, and kelp forests have moved 500 kilometres south. But what's happening closer to home? John Turnbull has been a volunteer for the Reef Life Survey for many years. Recently, he did an online talk about the changes happening in Port Phillip Bay. John, thanks so much for joining us on Out of the Blue. Welcome, James. So, John, can you tell us a bit about what's happening in Port Phillip Bay? Um, I know the Reef Life Survey uh, has been looking at changes in the bay over the past 10 years. What's happening to some of the wildlife that live in the bay, such as fish? Yes, well, look, Port Phillip Bay... Uh, being highly urbanised and on the doorstep of um, such a large city uh, has a lot of impacts from from that human development and, and those impacts over the years have been accumulating and starting have been changing the, um, the marine life of the bay. Uh, and so there are a few pressures that are, are leading to, to changes, um, things like runoff and climate change and fishing pressures. And so with that combination of effects, uh, we're seeing changes across the bay and those changes aren't uniform. So in some cases, the north north of the bay, which is uh, not as well flushed as down the southern end, it's, it's getting more impacts from higher density and, and, and more runoff from the city and the streets up there. Um, so often we find that what might be happening in the north end of the bay is a bit different to what's happening down around the heads and in the southern end. Um, and there's also things like dredging, which open up the southern end of the bay to things like higher wave energy than it's had in the past. And so that, that combination of things is leading to changes in fish, uh, invertebrates and kelp. So um, 
we uh, the Reef Life Survey Program does um, regular surveys of sites around the world. Actually, it started in Tasmania, but uh, it's grown immensely. And so we've been surveying um, in the bay for over ten years. And so we have a reasonable data set to say, well, what's happened over the last decade? So if we sort of look through the, the main categories, uh, first of all, if you look at fish, um, we're seeing quite substantial declines in fish diversity and fish numbers in the northern end of the bay, where, as I said, we do have some higher impacts up in that northern end. Um, and so, you know, you might on a transect, which which is the standard way that we do a survey, a 50-metre stretch where we run a tape measure and we record all the species along that 50-metre stretch, in, in, a, in a single transect, we might only get one or two species of fish mm. up in that northern end of the bay, and that's very low, okay? Mm. That's very low diversity. In, in fact, we might get no species of fish on a really bad day. Um, whereas down in the southern end of the bay, around around the heads, we might get 10, 15 species of fish on a transect. So there's a, a gradient of m many more fish species in the south than in the north, but we're also seeing a difference in the trends in those direction in those uh, fish species. So basically, not only are there less fish in the north, there's a downward trend. Yeah. Um, over the 10 years and you can that sort of makes sense but it could also be going the other way right so there might be less fish but it's improving mm. um, but in fact it's less fish and still declining uh, whereas in the southern end of the bay there are some sites that are coming up a little bit and that could be things like um, you know fish species that are a bit happier with some of the warmer temperatures that we're seeing starting to move into the bay and and they recruit to those southern locations because they're you know the water's clearer and, and more flushed mm. so um yeah that sort of thing could be going on it's a bit hard to know in, unless we spend more time analyzing but for now there's a pretty clear trend um in fish species uh, across the bay um in terms of invertebrates so things like sea stars and abalone and so on uh we're, we're seeing almost the opposite trend so even though Generally, invertebrates are declining in southeastern Australia. Um, up in the northern end of Port Phillip Bay, we are seeing some increases in invertebrate numbers. Uh, but see, that that can be a good thing, but it might also not be a, a good thing because it depends on the invertebrates that are moving into an area. And we know we have a problem with urchins in southeast mm. Australia where the urchins... Um, boom over time and then they in, in turn um, overwhelm other species and so there's a bit of a indication that that's happening so even though invertebrate numbers are going up in the northern end of the bay it may not be a great story mm. it's interesting that um, the trends are basically the opposite why could invertebrates be declining in the south yeah well um Different systems operate differently, and, and this is a temperate system as opposed to tropical, so cooler waters. Uh, and in temperate systems, invertebrates uh, tend to be preyed on by larger fish mm. um, as a fairly sort of strong uh, interaction um, between those two types of animals. And so it, it could simply be that because there are more fish in the south, there are more predators 
mm. and therefore they suppress the uh, invertebrates in the southern end of the bay. But that's a natural process. So just because there are less invertebrates in the south, that, that might just be that it's actually a bit closer to a well-balanced system. Right. Um, as opposed to in the north where it may be out of whack as a result of the human impacts. Right. So tell us about these sea urchins. So these are a native species and they're quite key to the bay's ecosystems, but they can wreak some havoc, can't they? Yeah, well, look, we've always had these these urchins. This, this particular species, the purple urchin, is the one that's really uh, accelerating. And, and on the east coast of Australia, there's a different species, which is the long spine urchin, but they're both pretty much doing the same thing. And that is... Um, that they, they find themselves, and so they're just naturally there, they're normally part of the system, but they're normally kept in check, particularly by predators. And in the case of big urchins, we're talking about big fish and big lobsters are the sort of main predators. And if you can imagine a, an urchin the size of a grapefruit, um, a, a, a lobster, in order to eat that, it's got to be able to get its claws around and and almost crush it from the other side so mm. you need a really big lobster to be able to knock off an urchin like that and and same for a, you know a big snapper or a big blue groper or something and see we're taking those out of the system um you know we like to catch the big fish and we like to catch the big lobsters so we're preferentially when we go out and and and, and extract animals out of the system through fishing we're preferentially pulling out those animals that would otherwise suppress urchin numbers hmm. and so that process then means the urchins go woohoo i don't have anything to keep me in check now so i can um plow my way through these um these kelp beds and and eat eat to my heart's content i don't have to worry about being eaten myself and so we've we've released the natural governing forces that keep those urchins in check and so they're, they're basically booming as a result of that. Yes, yeah, so urchins eat kelp and seaweeds. So can you tell us about some of the trends you've seen? So this is, these are a critical habitat within the bay. What's happening yeah, with the kelp? Absolutely. Um, so if you can imagine a walk through the bush or walk through the forest on land, and, and that forest is really made by the presence of big trees, right? Mm. So... Those trees provide shelter, they provide habitat, they provide food for the animal species. Well, the equivalent to that underwater is the kelp plant. So they're not as tall as trees, but kelp plants basically are the, the habitat formers and the forests under the water. And unfortunately, um, kelp is one of the favoured foods of these urchins. And so normally healthy kelp forests would be uh, would be in place and combined with predators, um, they would happily coexist with these urchins in a nicely, nicely balanced arrangement, whereas now the urchins are chewing their way through these kelp forests and stripping them bare. And the, the conversion is called creating urchin barrens. Mm. Uh, so if you can imagine, it's the difference between walking through a forest and walking through, say, um, paddocks that have been cleared and just have grass. That's really what we're ending up with. And these urchin barrens, uh, you know, they're a natural part of the system too, but they're not normally as uh, widespread as we're now finding. Um, 
that then it sort of almost comes full circle because those species that we like, you know, the lobster and abalone and so on, they depend on those kelp forests. And so we've sort of come full circle and by our own impacts on the system, we're clearing the very forests through an indirect method, through the urchins, which then once again provide us with the things we care about. Mm. So, you know, it's an interesting cyclical um, process that that is really changing these systems from being underwater forests to being pretty much bare rock with just a fuzz of algae growing on it. So, John, can you tell us about the impact of climate change on kelp? Yeah, so kelp is is a cold water plant, basically. Uh, kelp, kelp plants, they get their nutrients from the water. Um, they don't have a root system. And so they depend on cool, nutrient-rich waters, which are typically the waters we get in southern um, regions. And so the big problem that kelp is facing is multiple stressors. So we have the urchins that are eating the kelp, but on top of that, we have things like pollution, which affects the kelp, of course, the water quality, but we also have the climate change impacts. And so as the waters are warming, and we've already seen about a one degree warming um, down in um, southeast Australia, as the waters are warming, the kelp plants then um, can't get the conditions that they like the most, and so um, they get affected by... Um, the, both the lower nutrients in the water and also the warmer temperatures. And so that may not be enough to kill the kelp plant, but it might weaken it and open it up to things like herbivory by the urchins. How much of a problem is pollution in Port Phillip Bay? Look, any any city where uh, you have millions of people driving their cars and fertilising their lawns and, and, you know, washing clothes... All of those chemicals from tyres eroding on the road surface, turning into tiny particles that get washed down the drain, all the way through to changes in nutrient levels, which come from things like fertilisers and and insecticides, all of those pollutants then change the the water quality. And if you can imagine, see, marine creatures, um, so something like kelp, for example, not having a root system, it, it gets its nutrients um, from the sun through photosynthesis and from the water itself and if you have say turbid water which is muddier than usual because of recent rains then it can't get the light and so it can't photosynthesize and it can't make its own food or if it's reliant on uh, micronutrients that are normally in the system from runoff from lovely streams and clean waterways from bush areas now that toxic cocktail that's coming in through stormwater drains is very different to what that kelp plant can sustain. And so it, it is a big problem. We know that um, the change in climate in around is we believe is actually doing two things. One is the warming, which uh, I've mentioned, but the other is it's becoming drier. And by becoming drier... I I mean, when you do get those rainfall events, they're even higher a spike in um, pollutants because there's been more accumulation since the last time it rained. And it also changes the salinity in the bay. So there's all sorts of things that just by the act of us living on the shores 
is then changing the chemistry and pollution levels in the bay. We're going to hear more from John after the break, but first, here's a song. This is Alice Skye with Stay In Bed. You're listening to Out Of The Blue on 3CR.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR, and that was Alice Skye with Stay in Bed. We're talking to John Turnbull from the Reef Life Survey that's been tracking changes in Port Phillip Bay. Next up, we're going to hear more about how the survey works and how you can get involved. Can you tell us a bit about the Reef Life Survey and how that came about? Yeah, well, I wasn't there in the early days. I've become involved. I've been involved for the last eight years or so. But Reef Life Survey started uh, about twelve years ago, and, and and a couple of scientists from Tasmania um, asked themselves a, a pretty important question. Um, if you imagine one of the big problems that we have with marine systems is we have very poor levels of data, and that's because it's very expensive to get out there and measure things. You involve scuba gear, and you've only got a limited amount of time on a certain tank of air and it involves boats so we really were struggling back then with um with a lack of good data to tell us what's going on and if you're not measuring what's going on you're not in a position to manage it so you don't you, you don't know that things might be going downhill without good data right and in fact that was something that happened in sydney um about 30 40 years ago all the crayweed forests in sydney disappeared but no one knew for 10 years just because there was no measurement process to identify that. So without good data coming in in a way that's affordable, we run the risk of losing systems and not even knowing until it's too late. And so these two scientists or, and, and others from Tasmania said, well, I wonder whether we can train up um, volunteers to gather data which is of the standard that a scientist would gather. And, and so really it was an interesting question because the prevailing view with citizen science is often where you've got to you know, simplify the program a bit and maybe you only ask people to record a fixed set of species that they learn in advance. Whereas these scientists said, well, actually, we wonder whether we could train highly motivated people. So not everybody. Maybe you'd end up with less volunteers. But can we find some people who we can train up who will then actually go out and gather high-quality comprehensive data so we're not just looking at certain species we're looking at every fish species that we encounter all the mobile macroinvertebrates taking photo quadrants at the bottom so quite an extensive process and and the answer basically is yes um so that's been really quite a successful program now and there are oh i think the last count there's something like thirteen thousand surveys um around the world um, which is a massive, I think it's in yeah. over 50 countries. And the data that's been collected by Reef Life Survey has been used in some really large-scale analyses because you think of something like climate change, that's a global problem, right? So you can't ask questions like, what's the effect of climate change if you're only looking at a handful of sites in one country? Mm. So these big issues, these big macro questions need big data sets. And so Reef Life Server has been able to answer some of those really big questions in recent years because there's just so many sites and there's a decade of data. So it really it really has been a, a massive success story and I mean that's what attracted me to it. I, I didn't I didn't know the program at all uh, when I got involved, but I was casting around for something that would really uh, stimulate my interest and really challenged me and I stumbled upon it and um, since then I've been become oh, I, I suppose as you know because I'm I'm you know involved in doing the, the talk but 
I've become a really strong advocate for it because it is it is not only a great program in terms of gathering the sort of information that scientists need. It's a great program for a person to get involved. And if you know, if you're that sort of person that sort of sinks their teeth into these sort of um, you know um, challenging style projects, because you learn so much. And every time I stick my face in the water with a mask on now, instead of seeing 20 silver fish i see 20 fish that are five species that are different sizes and are interacting a certain way so the way you see the underwater world is much richer as a result of that um so you've just released the reef life survey has just released uh, a great website called the reef explorer can you tell us a bit about that yeah so the, one of the questions that that we've been working on is can we make this data available to the, the wider public? It's been it's been available to anyone who wants to download it um, really from day zero, but it um, used to be accessible as you'd get this big long spreadsheet and you know how do you make head or tail of it? You don't know what the, the data necessarily means. So um, we've been working on this tool which makes it much more accessible. And so the, uh, the Reef Explorer is, is basically a website where you can go in, um, you can draw a box around an area like Port Phillip Bay or you know, Ningaloo or wherever you're interested in, and then you can start to ask questions uh, about that area. So you can look, and particularly you can look at trends. So you can just say, over time, what's happening to um, kelp in this area or what's happening to fish biomass in this area? And... It will show you um, heat maps where you can see, you know, using colours, you can see which parts, for example, are affected the most or change the most. You can also see graphs of trends over time. You know, you can see is biomass going up or down over the last 10 years. Mm. It's, it, sounds, um, it sounds really interesting. It's a great way to explore um, the oceans from, from the land. So how can people get involved with the Reef Life Survey if they're interested? Yeah, well, there, there are various ways to get involved. Uh, so the, the, the sort of main pathway, which is for people who are um, already scuba divers and, and are already skilled with scuba diving, if you're interested in getting involved as a surveyor, then it's, it's basically a matter of just contacting Reef Life Survey through the website and saying, hey, I'm interested, I live here, here is my level of skill with scuba diving. And we if it's an area where we have a trainer, so, uh, you know, places like Hobart and Sydney and Perth and so on, um, we'll put you in touch with the local trainer. And, and then it's simply a matter of, okay, we're doing a survey on Saturday. Who wants to come? And trainees are welcome. And if we say trainees are welcome, it basically means you can come along, you tag along with us on the dive, you watch what we're doing, and then over time, you start to do it yourself, and eventually the data that you're collecting uh, is as good as um, the person that's training you, and, and then you become certified. So that's the mainstream sort of become an RLS diver um, pathway. But there are other things you can do to support us. Um, we're always, like any organisation that works with volunteers, we're always very... Um, pleased and, and grateful to receive donations and so you can make a donation through the website um, and there's also the possibility of getting involved in other ways you know there are other things you can volunteer for so for example uh, I'm working with someone at the moment who um, 
as part of her honours, she's in the UK, but as part of her honours, she's helping us to score those uh, photographs that we take of the bottom. So when we when we do a survey, we photograph 20 photographs of, along the tape, and so we need afterwards someone to go through those and go, okay, this this photograph here is it's got kelp in it and it's got you know three urchins and it's got whatever. Um, so that process of scoring those photographs is, is is yet again another way that people can get involved and that's all just done through a computer and and you know doesn't involve diving so I, i'd say if anyone's interested in supporting us visit the website have a read and put your name forward and and you know there's there's always plenty plenty that people can do great thanks john for joining us on out of the blue Thanks, James. Uh, pleased to have the chance to talk about this program. That was John Turnbull from the Reef Life Survey. To find out more about the survey, to donate, or to explore their amazing new reef exploring website, head to www.reeflifesurvey.com. And that's all we have time for today, and it's actually my last show for the year. To listen to this episode again, or any of our previous episodes, head to our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash radioblue. And you can follow our Facebook page for updates. Have a very safe and happy holiday period and I'll see you next year. Stay well. Stay well.